0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And we are continuing with our spooky Halloween series, this time covering something that's uh, very creepy, very disturbing. And that is, of course, poison. So, Just a few years back, Katie and I did an episode on a pretty notorious poisoning family. You know who I'm talking about, De Oh,
1: yeah, the Borgias.
0: The Borgias. They have their own show these days. But the Italian clan, of course, was fathered by a cardinal who became pope, and they are famous for plotting and scheming and murdering their way into power. Uh, I think the luckiest fellow in that earlier episode seemed to be Lucrezia's first husband, Giovanni Sforza, who, in exchange for broadcasting his non-existent impotence, was allowed to... To get out of the marriage alive. That's pretty bad if he's the luckiest guy in the episode.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but many, many others were not so lucky, as you know. The Borgias had a heavy hand with arsenic, a nasty poison, particularly effective because it's so hard to taste or detect. Pure arsenic, just to give you a little background, is a heavy metal, sometimes found in ore. But when heated with oxygen, pure arsenic becomes arsenic trioxide, or white arsenic, a crumbly powder. Something that can be
0: mixed in easily.
1: Yeah, you can mix it in with a lot of things, with beverages, but also with food. Administered in one killer dose or slipped in a bit over time, either way, It it mimics a natural decline in health, and that's why it's so deadly. If
0: it's given bit by bit, it looks like some kind of natural decline. If it's given in one big dose, it can look similar to other catastrophic illnesses. And the Borgias apparently further refined white arsenic. They weren't just (laughs) satisfied with this already potent killer. They made uh, almost their own family poison, essentially, just for their use. And so ultimately, the family name, and especially that of... The famous daughter, Lucrezia Borgia, became really a byword for poisoner, one that still had weight to it more than 400 years later when the American tabloids started calling a New Jersey housewife America's Lucrezia Borgia. And this lady, who we're going to talk about today, had the distinction of being tried not once, not twice, but three times for murder by arsenic. So she racked up a few counts here. She did. And, um, it's, it's a very interesting story and it's one that's covered in depth in Deborah Bloom's book, The Poisoner's Handbook, which has come up on the show before. We mentioned it during our Radium Girls episode.
1: Um, it's, it's come it, up a few times in research for us. It I has.
0: Think. It, it's a good source for this story and I also want to say before we get going too, this is one of those stories where you really are glad that it's in the 20th century because you can check out the newspaper archival records. And I have so much fun going through these old 1920s, 1930s newspaper articles and looking at their crazy tabloidy headlines, <laughs> even when it's the New York Times, and reading about the trial as it as it happened day by day. Watching
1: it unfold mm-hmm. in a way. Yep. So just to give you a little background of How this all began, the modern Lucrezia named Mary Frances Crichton, or Fanny, was a 24-year-old from Newark, New Jersey, when she was first arrested in 1923. She'd been raised by her grandparents with a brother and two sisters and married her childhood friend and World War I veteran, John Crichton, a few years before this arrest. They had a three-year-old daughter named Ruth and a son, John Jr., who was born while Fanny awaited trial in prison. Yeah.
0: And to the outside world, and to the tabloids, certainly, which loved this sensational story, Uh, Fanny had very good looks, and uh, as a young mother in prison, just presented a very compelling sort of narrative. But to the outside world, she really did seem like an unlikely poisoner. She, She kept to herself, but not in a weird, creepy kind of way. She dressed demurely in all black through her media appearances. She wore a very prominent silver cross, and she would pose for these press photos with her infant in arms. Uh, she she didn't she seemed like a normal lady, not somebody tame
1: and conservative. Yeah, almost. who
0: who had yeah. murdered with arsenic.
1: So the story seemed to have started right after the Crichtons' marriage. Fanny and John had moved into his family's comfortable Newark home. John Crichton's forty-seven-year-old mother died within the year. ...after they moved in, supposedly of some type of bacterial infection that caused extreme nausea. Within two years, Crichton's 47-year-old father was also dead, in this case from heart trouble. So, I don't know kind of a a sudden decline in the
0: health of the two elder Crichtons. Yes. Um, But a couple years after the the elder Mr. and Mrs. Crichton had died, Fanny's teenage brother Charles came to live with the family and and this was in 1923 and he essentially acted as their housekeeper, as the babysitter for Ruth. Plus he got a job down at the corner store, sort of just acting a, a stock boy position. But by April of that year, so just a few months after moving in with his sister and brother-in-law. Charles started feeling not so great. And he went to the doctor. The doctor prescribed him some sort of mild medicine. You know, thought he had a, a minor infection. A week later though he went back to the doctor. His aches had really gotten worse. He was feeling very sick all the time. He had a really bad sore throat. So again the doctor upped the dose of of the tonic he had prescribed. By April 20th, though, Charles was dead. So suddenly (laughs) the situation starts to look a little different. We have three dead people in the Crichton household in almost as many years. Three people who hadn't been ill before, just suddenly very, very sick.
1: Bloom describes this death as the first sort of warning sign, though not a very strong one, it seems. The doctor just wondered what went wrong here with this seemingly healthy teen? He even asked the advice of a county physician. Ultimately, they ruled that the death was caused by a simple stomach bug, even though the doctor still felt a little funny about this entire case, and he even began thinking a little bit more about the deaths of Mr. and Mrs. Crichton the Elder.
0: Yeah, so so the doctor is, is pondering this a little bit, but still nobody thinks foul play was involved. And that's until an anonymous tipster wrote into the police asking, quote, is death not ground for suspicion? This boy feared his sister as he feared death. I'm very sorry that I cannot sign my name. I'm just an outsider who is very fond of this boy. Please act quickly and beware. You will find it hard to trap this liar. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty serious note to get and it certainly got the police looking closer at um not just Charles's death but considering the earlier deaths of the Crichtons as well.
1: Yeah, they uh, they started to find other suggestions that something here was amiss when they started looking closer, as you said. Fanny had convinced her brother to purchase a $1,000 life insurance policy, for instance. With
0: her as the beneficiary. Right.
1: And Charles's employer told them how the boy would complain about being force-fed chocolate pudding at home by his sister.
0: They both thought that was a little strange. And... Shortly after, you know, this questioning and investigation, Charles's body was exhumed and did test positive for arsenic. At that point, Fanny and her husband, John, were arrested for murder. The only real problem with this case was that there was no clear source of arsenic in the Crichton home. There was just the best the detectives could find was something called Fowler's Solution, which was a type of face tonic that contained arsenic for clear skin. Um, Fanny was known for having a very beautiful complexion. And even though arsenic was laced through a lot of household products at the time, rat poison, for instance, bug poison, green dye and wallpapers, fly traps. If you read this book, you'll be like, oh, my gosh, it was in everything people were handling. Uh, Even though it was in a lot of stuff, it was not very highly concentrated in this face tonic. But because it was the only household source they could find, it was the basis for the case. It, It seemed that Fanny and John must have poisoned young Charles, with face tonic, arsenic and face tonic, put into chocolate pudding.
1: In her book, Bloom writes about Rudolf Whithouse, a 19th century chemist who wrote a definitive book on forensic medicine. So while we think of arsenic in relation to the Italian Renaissance, it was also a great favorite of poisoners in the 19th century, one of the most popular poisons, in fact, according to Whithouse. That's not because it was undetectable, as you might imagine. Since the early 1800s, pathologists could actually find arsenic in the body. And over that century, many tests have been developed to locate it. It could also last in the body for ages. It was detectable in hair and nails for decades, which makes you think maybe poisoners wouldn't want to use it. It wouldn't be a
0: great poison. Mm -hmm. But poisoners did still have a few things going for them with arsenic. One was that unless an autopsy was done, so unless somebody did get suspicious about the death, Arsenic deaths really could look a lot like something else, like food poisoning or cholera, even the flu. Um, those low doses, you were talking about this, it, how it can be administered slowly over time. Those could look a lot like gradually worsening health, something like heart failure. And even if the body was studied, even if there was an autopsy conducted, the presence of arsenic could sometimes be really tricky to interpret because Partly because, at least, there were trace amounts of arsenic in a lot of common things. I mean, we already mentioned all those household items where it is the main ingredient, but there's a little bit of arsenic in a lot of common items that people would use at the time. So it could be in the body. There was the potential for something to be
1: contaminated with arsenic. It was just tricky to interpret. Consequently, even in the late 1800s, when Whithouse wrote his book, he noted that it was, quote, in almost every instance the agent used by those who having succeeded in a first attempt at secret poisoning have seemed to develop a lust for murder and have continued to add to their list of victims until their very number had aroused suspicion and led to detection
0: okay so that's something to to remember as we as we go on kind of a calling card of many arsenic murders. But during Charles's murder trial, the Crichton's lawyer really focused on the case's weakest point, which was, of course, that the poison had supposedly come from the Crichton's home and had specifically been this weak facial tonic. He pointed out that lots of women have this tonic in their home. It is not a strange thing to have about. And also, it would take loads of it to kill a grown man. And... This was sort of the main point here. Remember, Charles had worked at a corner store, so a place where there would be a ready supply of products way heavier on arsenic than this Fowler's uh, solution. You know, things with 90% arsenic, like rat poison, for instance. So the lawyer was starting to sort of present an an alternate theory that maybe Charles had done this himself. Maybe he was distraught over some failed romance. He had easy access to arsenic-laced products, and it... His sister and brother-in-law had nothing to do with it.
1: He also downplayed that one thousand dollar insurance policy as a motive. He insinuated that that was just enough to cover the funeral expenses. So why would that be Not something worth a that murder. exactly? So it worked.
0: The Crichtons were acquitted on June twenty third. Fanny, so relieved, fainted in the courtroom, or perhaps playing into her her tabloid image a little bit. But Fanny wasn't on the outside for very long because just one day later, Fanny, and it was just Fanny this time. Her husband was, was not involved in this second round. She was arrested again for a murder.
1: Yeah, the senior Mr. and Mrs. Crichton had been exhumed by this time. They'd been exhumed in May. And while Mr. Crichton's cause of death held out, Mrs. Crichton's body was clearly touched by arsenic. Some of the testimony seemed more damning this time. The elder Mrs. Crichton's nurse, for example, testified that her patient got sick after Fanny gave her cocoa and worsened when she'd been left alone with her daughter-in-law. So chocolate seems to be playing a big part here with the cocoa and the the chocolate pudding. pudding. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. It
0: does. That might be one that disguises the taste of arsenic easily. Uh, But this case really came at the cusp of an interesting time in forensic science, Uh, really at a time when forensic evidence was uh, becoming a major component. Of trials, And so, consequently, both sides included testimony from the country's top pathologists, you know, guys who had analyzed the organs of Mrs. Crichton and could testify to some extent about the arsenic that was present there. And the defense called on a guy named Alexander Gettler, who was a toxicologist at the chief medical examiner's office in New York City. And incidentally, Gettler is one of the prime subjects in the book we keep mentioning, which is all about Sort of the birth of modern forensic science in New York City. So it really follows his story. But he plays a a very strange role in this case, as you're going to continue to see. But he had tested Mrs. Crichton's organs, and he did find white arsenic present. But you know how a minute ago we mentioned that the presence of arsenic could sometimes be a little tricky to interpret. Gettler found that in addition to these trace amounts of arsenic in Mrs. Crichton's body, there were large amounts of bismuth in her body, which was a common element in anti-nausea medicine at the time, and one that sometimes also included trace amounts of arsenic. It held out. Mrs. Crichton's doctor had, in fact, prescribed her a bismuth-based medicine, so they knew that she had been taking this. So Gettler's opinion was that because of those small amounts of arsenic and large amounts of bismuth, he assumed she had taken medicine that was contaminated. It had had more arsenic in it than was safe to ingest. And that testimony proved compelling because, again, for, for the second time in a very short span of time, Fanny Crichton was acquitted.
1: So after this, years go by. And those tabloids that were all in a tizzy over this beautiful American Lucrezia Borgia with her infant in arms, they just kind of go away. Old news. Exactly. And the Crichtons, along with their two kids, they decide to escape Newark. They just have too much notoriety there, and they move to Long Island. Not so far away, (laughs) but I guess enough to give them a little bit of a fresh start.
0: They hadn't been terribly
1: popular with their neighbors in Newark, too. I'm sure. And in the midst of the Great Depression, they decide to take in a friend of John's, another World War I veteran named Everett Applegate, who'd been living with his wife and teenage daughter at his in-laws. So with this new addition, there are now two families, so two sets of parents and
0: three kids, ranging from ages 12 to 15, uh, living in a, a two-bedroom house. You know, they're all kind of crammed in there, but... Seems they're friendly, seems like things are going well. Then in September 1936, Ada Applegate, who is Everett's 36-year-old wife, started feeling very sick. You can tell where this is gonna go. In fact, she gets so sick that her doctor recommends she go to the hospital. She's hospitalized for an entire week. And then when she is released back home, she still is so weak, she can only take milk. She's feeling very ill, very weak. And finally, on September 27th, she woke up vomiting, quickly passed out. Everett called the doctor. He called the police. But before they could do anything, she was already dead.
1: So, all right. Official cause of death. Heart trouble. The doctor, I guess, okay, Okay. Makes sense a little bit at first. The doctor had treated Ada for obesity for some time. But even with her previous health problems, the police wanted to order an autopsy, as you would imagine they would, considering (laughs) our subject's background. And
0: you'd think that maybe Everett would be okay with that, too, wouldn't you? Mm, No. He said no. He says no. And they basically tell him, well... We're going to do it anyway, so it would be good for you to say yes. Uh, the autopsy <laughs> does go ahead, as you can imagine. And the toxicologist, our old friend Alexander Gettler since this is his jurisdiction this time, did find arsenic in every organ of Ada's. And he believed that the arsenic was specifically from a very common 90% rat poison, specifically one called rough-on-rats. And the obvious suspects were, of course, the husband, Everett. Something seemed a little fishy there. And then also the very obvious co-suspect The Applegate's housemate, Fanny Crichton, the famously twice acquitted arsenic murderess.
1: Now she goes by Fran. She goes by Fran now, you know, She's trying her, her name, change her image,
0: But you know that they're they're going to investigate her involvement in this. It's just too many coincidences in her life,
1: of course. So this is where the newspaper archives that Sarah mentioned really become a fascinating resource for this story. The New York Times, for example, covered it blow by blow, and you can still find those articles online. So, if you want to check those out after listening to this podcast, and
0: the headlines. That might be a fun thing they to do. They all have headlines that are about 50 words long, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you look at some of these articles, though, Fran presents a, a very unusual front right from the start.
1: Yeah, her testimony seemed to vary wildly. She admitted to killing her brother years earlier using rat poison, not the Fowler solution, as they previously thought. She implicated Everett Applegate also, claiming that Ada's murder was actually his idea. But by October, she took it back, saying, according to an October 10th article, that she, quote, wanted to make trouble for him, But the murder was actually her doing. So uh, she
0: she says, I I accused him because I was trying to stir up trouble. So Mm -hmm. why would she want to do that? What would she have against this guy? And at first, detectives suspected that Everett and Fran had been having an affair together. But soon it became clear that the real affair was between Everett and the Crichton's 15-year-old daughter, Ruth. So they started thinking, okay, well, did Everett murder his wife to be with Ruth. And when the trial began in January 1936, Applegate did admit that he had wanted to marry Ruth. He admitted to their relationship. Other witnesses, though, including Ruth and John Crichton, came forward with some pretty damning testimony. Um, Ruth, for instance, spoke of how Everett had once asked her if she'd like him better single. John, who just seems um, very, like, Not aware of what's going on in his household. 12 years earlier and at this point, uh, recounted how Everett once spoke to him about fixing Ruth up in her own apartment. You know, would that be okay? And he's thinking, what? So, Everett seems like, uh, you know, he's fessing up to this, this relationship, but he is denying that he murdered his wife. He, he flatly denies that. He instead testified that the murder was Fran's doing. Even though he had given her the money to buy the rat poison, he said, He thought she just had a rodent problem she needed to deal with. It was not to deal with his
1: wife, Ada. So this is where Alexander Gettler comes in again, the New York City toxicologist. He's looped into the Crichton trial, testifies that 11 grains of poison had been given to Ada. He considers three grains of white arsenic lethal. So there's no ambiguity here like there was the last time about contaminated medicine or anything like that. It's clearly poisoning that was done intentionally.
0: And, and another thing that really interested me, I, I think about uh, most cases or most uh, accounts of the story you see do focus only on the poison because that's the main part. But there was also a handwriting expert who was involved in the trial who testified that these six anonymous letters that had come to the Long Island home urging the Crichtons to, quote, get rid of the Applegates had really been written by Mrs. Crichton. Um, It just reminds me so much of the earlier anonymous tipster note and whether Mm -hmm. Fanny, now Fran, could have been inspired by that in some way or, or what was going on. But... Her testimony was really just as shady as it had been before the, before the trial started. She claimed she had bought the poison, but Everett had made her do it, you know, it was under his direction. At another point, according to an article from January 23rd, she claimed that she even mixed Ada's drink, but thought that the white powder Everett had asked her to add to the milk was this other very similar looking medicine she'd mixed in with the drink before and it was okay.
1: A sample of dialogue from the next day, which was January 24th, when Fran and the prosecutor went into more detail about mixing up the poison milk is kind of interesting, so we want to share that with you. Uh, The prosecutor said, you stood by and watched this woman who was your best friend die? Yes. You didn't tell the police that you were being forced by Applegate to do this? No. You had heard a great deal about arsenic and its symptoms, had you not?
0: Yes, and that's my favorite question. It's just, <laughs> I think they couldn't mention the, the earlier acquittals, but the prosecutor clearly wanted to make the point, if anybody knew what arsenic did to people, It was this lady. (laughs) She'd had a lot of experience in it, even assuming that she was innocent in the earlier cases. She had clearly still been there to hear all about what happens with arsenic.
1: So she would have recognized the signs, even if she didn't have anything to do with it. Exactly.
0: So there were other testimonies involved, too. Of course, Applegate's uncle, for instance, testified that when he visited the home, Fran had complained about Ada and even said, quote, that she'd like to drop her some rat poison. Uh, Pretty, pretty straightforward uh, point there. But the ultimate picture that emerged, at least for the jury, was of Everett trying to free himself from his wife so he could marry this 15 year old girl. And Fran, who apparently knew about the relationship and was eager to encourage it to free up space in her house. I mean, you would have thought you might free up too much space in your house yeah, because <laughs> presumably the rest of the family would no longer be living there. But on January 30th, both Everett and Fran were sentenced to death.
1: It had been a crazy trial. One day after recess, the crush to get seats had actually resulted in several women being knocked to the ground, but the execution itself was not a big event. Crichton's lawyers even pulled an 11th hour move with a letter from Ruth claiming that Everett had told her he'd kill his wife and then marry Ruth, but made her swear that she'd never tell or he'd get her in trouble and she'd wind up in jail. So she claimed that's why she told no one and didn't speak of it at the trial, but no dice. Didn't work. Yeah, Too late. Didn't work at all.
0: And the day of the executions, which were to take place at Sing Sing Prison, another place that just keeps popping up in podcasts, uh, they were set to take place July 16th. That day, Fran Crichton's lawyer asked her... If she had lied during the case about Everett's involvement in any way, please speak now because he was going to be electrocuted as well. She said she hadn't lied. She didn't need to change her story. And Applegate was electrocuted first that night. Um prison attendants had formed a, a human screen. I mean, I know we mentioned it wasn't this huge media event, but still it was getting some coverage. They had formed a human screen between the newspapermen and the electric chair to stop any secret photographers from from snapping a shot because that was something that had unfortunately happened a few years earlier at the prison. They wanted to avoid that happening again. Crichton for her part was so distraught and terrified. She had to actually be wheeled in to the electric chair. She came in with a rosary. She had converted to Catholicism that afternoon. But right before the power was turned on, she threw down her rosary beads. So a very memorable last image for anybody who was there I would imagine. But a crazy story too, and, and Dublina and I were talking about it earlier, just how did it go on so
1: long? I just I don't know. I feel like we wonder that about all of these we do. kinds it, of stories. Maybe it just
0: seems so apparent after the fact that right. there was something sinister going on in this household, especially you think about John Crichton. What what was going on there, you know, <laughs> with his, his first his parents dying, then his brother-in-law, then his housemate. I don't know.
1: I mean, I I guess maybe when you're that close to the situation and it's your family, you
0: just can't even
1: process, you you don't even want to believe that, or can't even believe that that would be the case.
0: Anyway, though, I mean, a very unusual story of of poisoning and um, hopefully a a good tale to share with you guys for Halloween. We do have a little follow-up, though, that's kind of bizarre. Um, in addition to being an author, Bloom is a science journalist, and last month there was a piece in Wired about uh, arsenic in rice. Apparently, inorganic arsenic has been found in uh, 200 rice products at grocery stores across the the U.S., and some of the possible reasons, besides, of course, rice being really good at absorbing arsenic quickly since it it grows in uh, a wet environment. Uh Um, Some of the reasons where this inorganic arsenic could be coming from, one was possibly left over in fields in southern states where cotton had been grown for a long time and treated with arsenic-based pesticides. And then another possible reason was runoff from chicken farms where feed sometimes contains a different form of organic arsenic that can be converted to this more dangerous form. Kind of a strange, modern catch-up to this, though. Don't worry. Dublina's making a scared face at me right now.
1: (laughs) I Um, find this really troubling.
0: They they had some... I ate a a lot of rice. It was to vary your grains and to um, (laughs) boil your your rice in a lot of water. You know, don't do the Uncle Ben style where it soaks up all the water. Gotcha. And who knows? I mean, we're probably... This is like our... our, um, Food lab episode. We do, <laughs> we're probably already ingesting so many weird things that maybe a little arsenic in the rice.
1: I don't find that comforting, Sarah. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks, though. Well, <laughs> we'll certainly be avoiding the chocolate pudding now, though, won't we? Yeah. Well, I don't like chocolate that much. So <laughs> I'm safe there. It's the rice I'm worried about. Good to know. Well, so, now that we've alarmed everyone,
0: Okay, well, we will have some some fun listener mail to, to calm your nerves a little bit. All right, so you ready for some listener mail, Dublina? I am. We've been talking about how we got a lot of cool mail over the summer, and one of these was a postcard from Nicole and her daughter, Rebecca, and it is a postcard of Uzi, our old Iceman friend, except he is not an Iceman in the picture. He's a living guy wearing his clothes, and then they have, um, it's an illustration, of course, <laughs> with the photographic counterpart of his clothes in their deteriorated state, including his rope sandals and his hat. And um, Nicole wrote to say that she visited the the museum we mentioned during that episode for two hours, and she said that, I can assure you, Otzi looks like this, pointing to the little drawing on the backside of the postcard of the real Shriveled Iceman photo. And not like the Copper Age hottie on the other side. (laughs) Obviously, you're not the only ones who love him, though. Considering the proud photo of Brad Pitt's Utsy tattoo prominently displayed at the museum, Tablina and I had not realized. We did not
1: know. We Googled that. We did Google it. We needed
0: to have some proof ourselves of this. And uh, neither did Nicole, apparently. She wrote, who knew? She also said there were cases and cases of his, quote, wallet litter. We even saw his fungus. The bear hat was rather jaunty, but it's still hard to love a man with fleas. We love your podcast. So this was an adorable postcard and um, kind of a funny one, too.
1: It is hard to love a man with fleas. <laughs> True enough. We have another very cool card here from listener Kate in New York. She says, Hello, I just wanted to write and say how much I love your show. I work at a letterpress shop in Brooklyn and listen to your podcast every week and catch up on my listening while printing on huge 19th century presses. I even made the card I'm sending to you, which is, we should take a picture or something and post it on Facebook. We should. It's,
0: it's of um, Manhattan.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful card. And she goes on to say, your podcast has even inspired my best friend and I to start our own podcast, ABC Gotham. It's a New York City history podcast with one topic for every letter of the alphabet.
0: Oh, very fun! Safe yeah, letter we'll have to check it out. and history. It sounds like.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Kate, for sending that in.
0: It's always great to hear too from people who have started their own blog or podcast. I think that's so cool. I would have no idea how to do that. So cheers to you guys (laughs) for for starting your own show. Yeah,
1: we get a lot of help. So we're always impressed by people (laughs) who do this on their own. If you have any similar ventures that you're involved in, or maybe you just have some ideas that you want to send in for us to cover, maybe you have your own sort of Etsy story that you want to share with Sarah because you know it's her historical boyfriend and she's always <laughs> interested in Etsy stories you can write to us we're at historypodcast at discovery.com you can also look us up on Twitter or we are on Facebook
0: I wish I had a historical boyfriend who had like some living pictures you know not just like the mummified remains I don't know well there's lots of options out <laughs> I there might for need to you think back yeah. <laughs>
1: So yeah, if you, you can have any, leave your options there. open. You can. <laughs> You can date around a little bit.
0: <laughs> so yeah, if you have any ideas there, email us. And we do have, back going back to our, our more dismal poison subject, we do have a lot of articles on forensic science, which I am endlessly fascinated by. And uh, one of the reasons why this story interests me is because it really, like I said earlier, is kind of at the cusp of, of that becoming an important part of the um, of trials and and detection. So if you want to look at any of that, check out our science section on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.